I asked for a bunch of financials from three years and he handed me his checkbook. And I said, what's this? He said, I don't really have financials. I just have my checkbook. And that's how we did the first deal. At the time, it was probably doing about 2 million in revenue, maybe about 400 grand in EBITDA. Fast forward 2023, I think we'll probably do a little over 30 million in revenue and significantly more in EBITDA. My friend called me, said, hey, I work for my in-laws. They are getting old. They don't like sell me the company, but I think they'd sell it to somebody else. Are you interested? I never want to retire and I'm never going to retire. I've purposely set up what I do such that I'm basically living my retirement now. Funny enough, word got around. I'm in class. I get called into the dean's office. I'm like, what the heck is going on? What did I do? Was I an idiot? I started planning for about five years in advance. One day I said, okay, we're leaving. I bought the tickets, so we got to sell everything we own. We went to Europe and we spent six months there, came home for a couple weeks, and then we went west to Polynesia and Asia. My mother played volleyball in the Olympics in 1964 in Tokyo when I was 24. My mom's passing was tough. It made me realize life is short. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is Adam Wong, my longtime friend, founder of multiple companies, and just all-around cool guy. Thanks for coming. When you introduce yourself, how are you introducing yourself? It's different every time because we joke around. If you ask my wife what I do, she probably can't. She's not going to be able to tell you. And every time one of my friends is going to introduce me, they always ask me to introduce tell what I do, you know? I usually just say that I've been trying to avoid a real job my whole life. And that's my introduction. I'm like, that's all I do. And then if people really pry and like really want to know, and I'm not able to kind of brush them off with that little line, then I usually kind of give them a little more. I say, well, I invest in small businesses and some real estate. And then if they pry even more, then I kind of go into the spiel about Hawaiian style private equity, where put together hui's and we you know buy and invest in companies mostly local companies right. and some real estate so for people who don't know what's a hui it's basically a group of people yeah right yeah maybe explain a little bit about that if you're willing sure hooing up like hawaiian style private equity what does that mean well the hawaiian style means small cuz everything in hawaii all the deals in hawaii are small the companies in hawaii are small it means to me informal because I don't have a fund. Every time we put together a hui, we syndicate that deal independently from all the other deals because I want to give people a chance to say yes or no. It's not like I control their ability to decide to invest. But I will find an opportunity and then I'll go to a group of people, friends, family, business partners, and I will ask them if they want to co-invest with me to buy this company. And then they basically... Sign their life away to me because I say I have complete control. You guys just give me the money and let me decide what to do. And they say, sure. And so then we go buy the company and then I manage that kind of company, that investment on behalf of our group and our hui. 
When you say small, like what size is small? We've done companies that have been doing 10 million revenue. When we purchased, the largest company was doing maybe 18 million of revenue. EBITDA from 500,000, maybe actually smallest one, 250,000 to two and a half million bucks. So very small, basically too small for real private equity companies, even mid-market, which is like the supposedly the smaller private equity shops, you know, on the mainland. That's just too small for them because they make their money off of fees, right? When they do a deal, the size of the deal matters because they make a fee off of the size of the deal, a percentage on the total deal. They make a fee off of their fund sometimes. They make management fees off of the total revenue. And these are just way too small for people to typically, you know, make a living doing this, you know, full time. So what's the smallest one? We've put half a million bucks into a company. It's a pretty small, but you know, I also do really small kind of like venture capital type stuff as well, where it's startup. I try not to do as many of those, but startup tech stuff, even startup small businesses. And so for some of those, you know, we'll do $50,000 or something like that just to be in those deals as well. Have you had any of those that have done really well? No, that's tough in Hawaii. The typical formula right on the mainland is you got to do 10 of them in order to get one pop. And then the one pop pays for the nine that, you know, don't do so well. In Hawaii, there's just not enough good deal flow to get 10 good investments in the hopes that one pops. I just do it really based upon people who's bringing me the deal. Do I want to support that entrepreneur, that person? And of course, I think it's got to have some chance of scaling and being a good investment. What kind of multiple would you look for on that? Because typical venture capital multiple is going to be like three to five times or 10 times. You know what I mean? Yeah, venture stuff, I struggle to even fathom how to make the return on investment because it's basically an idea. It's so early stage and I just have no idea how the idea is going to hit or how it's not going to hit. So, I mean, I look at market, right? What are they a approaching a large market and do they have a realistic chance of hitting that market and getting a piece of that market? But again, I struggle for venture deals, you know, to make money and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Cause I'm not a techie. I'm not smart enough to figure all that stuff out. You just like the entrepreneurial spirit trying to help people out. Yeah. I, I remember back to my days as a young tech entrepreneur trying to figure stuff out and as long as the person has a good head on their shoulders and realistic about how they're approaching it, I do want to try to support, you know, local young entrepreneurs that are trying to do something good, you know? When you talk about the Hawaiian, like, private equity, can you mm -hmm. share a story that kind of encompasses that? They're all different in terms of the nature of why people are selling and all that, but they typically start, I'll tell you the story of the very first one, which, and again, I didn't even know what private equity was at this time. You know me, I was trying to start tech companies. Then I was a baker for a while. Then I tried to learn real estate, went into work for a real estate developer. And then as my son went to a daycare and at the daycare, I met a guy named Ryan Chun, whose daughter was at the same daycare, right? So just typical local story. We start talking at the daycare, picking up our kids. I ask him what he does. So he tells me he's got this valet parking business that he's been doing for 20 years. And it's all of a sudden taken off. And he's gotten kind of his first few commercial clients and hotel clients. And But he's struggling with what happens when an entrepreneur kind of grows into a company that now he has to manage, right? He doesn't like to pay taxes. He doesn't like the 
managing employees, you know, he's got no systems and he has a bunch of struggles. So we talk and we see each other picking up our kids every day. And every time we sit there half an hour while the kids play and we talk story. And eventually that turns into, we go to McDonald's after dropping off our kids a couple of times a week. He continues to share with me issues that he's facing in his business. I continue to just provide him whatever advice. You talking about like free coaching. Yeah, yeah, like advice that I can, you know, coaching or ideas or whatever. And then after, you know, a couple months, he says, you know, I feel really bad. Can I pay you to do that, to give me advice and meet with you? And I was like, mm, no, I don't want to get paid as a consultant. So we meet a couple more times, a talk story. We end up understanding that we share values. We approach things similarly, but very differently. And so one day he goes, what if I sold you half my company? would you do that? I was, And then I made me think, I'm like, that'd be interesting. So I said, well, let me learn that you're going to have to you know, give me a lot more information than kind of what I'm getting on these conversations. And he will tell the story, I think the same way. I asked for, you know, a bunch of financials from three years and he handed me his checkbook. <laughs> and I said, what's this? He said, I don't really have financials. I just have my checkbook. And I said, well, let me see if I can piece together you know, some sort of financial statement based upon the checkbook. And that's how we did the first deal. So I kind of put a valuation on it. And then I called probably like 10 friends and I said, hey, I'm going to buy half this company. Here's the valuation. And you guys want to invest with me? And so, you know, got nine, 10 suckers to say yes. And we bought half the company. And this was 2010. And so at the time, it was probably doing about 2 million in revenue, maybe about 400 grand in EBITDA. And, you know, fast forward 2023, I think we'll probably do a little over 30 million in revenue and significantly more in EBITDA. Wow. Do you still own half the company? So we ended up bringing on a third partner as basically the operating partner. She was in the business as a manager with Ryan. And so shortly after coming in, we transitioned from entrepreneur founder-led company to more professional management. And she was really key into that. So she ended up getting a chunk of the business. And then that kind of rapidly expanded. In 2019, we got an offer from a private equity firm out of Boston that owned a parking management company that had kind of a nationwide footprint that ended up buying us out in a cash and stock transaction. Oh, so you're done? No. So we still own stock in the company, but now we own stock in the larger company. And we continue to run Hawaii pretty independently on behalf of that company. So how does that affect your involvement with the company now, having the mainland investor? Nothing. We weren't ever looking to sell. And I guess that's another difference in Hawaiian style private equity. My goal is to build really strong companies that are locally owned and we don't have to sell. I'm not promising any of my investors a, a flip on a company and a five to seven year return. We're going to build companies and cash flow them. When they came and offered us, a lot of you know factors went into play on why we would sell or how we would sell their terms of the deals. But part of it was we basically wanted to run Hawaii how we wanted to run Hawaii. And we thought it was also the best for them to just let us run Hawaii because we've seen many companies try to come into Hawaii and compete and quickly, you know, lose market share and quickly bail out and go back to the mainland, right? So we we're very clear, like, hey, if we're going to do this deal, we're going to continue to manage how we manage. And so they've honored that 
deal term, so to speak. And so we continue to manage it how we've always managed it. They're going to run it the way they normally do it, where they're looking for a bump up in your revenue and so yeah. on, and then they're going to just resell their position? Correct. I mean, that's typically what they would do is continue to grow their company, then find the next private equity guy that's going to take them out at a multiple that's on a greater EBITDA than they bought it at, right? And then how do you make sure that next investor is on the same page? Well, at that point, we can get out because we met multiple companies during this time because we said, hey, if one guy is going to make an offer, we should probably get multiple, right? Just to see if there's a better fit elsewhere, a better valuation elsewhere. But we really like just the management team that was running the company at that time. And so, you know, basically we told them, hey, we'll roll some of our proceeds into stock in the company because we believe in you guys. But anytime you guys leave, we want the ability to get out with you because we believe in you guys as the management team, not the private equity owners. How did the flooring one come about? Typical local story. My friend called me, said, hey, I work for my in-laws. They are getting old. They don't like sell me the company, but I think they'd sell it to somebody else. And are you interested? So I said, sure. So I went down and met with Mrs. Mori at Island Flooring. And everybody that knows Mrs. Mori knows that she's the boss. You know, she's like typical old school Japanese dragon lady, very wonderful person, but she controls everything. And at the same time, she also feeds me every time I go down there and see her, right? So I literally had to go have lunch with her in her office for about six months, maybe once every few weeks, just to talk story and nothing about selling the company, nothing about deal terms, nothing about anything regarding buying the company, but just to talk story, build a relationship, which again, that's the typical Hawaiian style private equity because nobody from a normal private equity company would go and have sign in with Mrs. Mori, you know, for six months before even getting to talking about, you know, doing a deal. Was that a stipulation kind of, or it was just like, I don't want to get to know you a bit better. And then you just say, okay, I want to have a relationship here then. Cause that's typical local style. Yeah. Yeah. So you just got to have the patience and read and understand that's how Mrs. Mori wanted to do business. Right. So you really just almost have to, fight the urge to just be like, hey, how much do you want for your company already? Not for, you know, Simon, you know, and you just got to sit and listen and talk story. How come she didn't want to sell to the son-in-law? Uh, well, they ended up getting divorced. Oh, well, so, that would be one reason. Yeah. But basically, you know, they're aging and this is a very typical story. This has been on multiple deals that I've done. Aging owners, pretty solid business. They've been in business for 50 years prior to us coming in and buying it. Kids are either unwilling or unable to take on the business. And so they have a bunch of equity in this business that are at least brand equity, depending on the type of company, but a bunch of equity in this business that they'd like to get out, you know, for retirement. Subcontracting turns out is a terrible business to be in. Cash flow wise, it's the worst because not only are you the last person paid, you got a 10% off the top goes to retention that you don't even see for a year, right? In a business that's a 20% margin business. So you're half your margins, you don't even collect for a year, right? So cash flow becomes an issue as you get busier. And so as aging owners, as you get busier, you actually got to come out of pocket, come go to the bank and pull out money out of your savings as right at the point in time where you're trying to 
you know, retire and relax and go into another phase of your life. So that was another issue that they faced. And so we came in and we negotiated a win-win for everybody that allowed them to stop coming out of pocket. We threw in some working capital in the business and we purchased the business in 2014 and we left their kids with a small piece of equity because that was important to them to have that. Knowing that when you transition out of business Mm -hmm. things and so on, you have to have a new purpose, new identity. How does that change your view on the way you live your life? It doesn't change my view. It it reinforces the view that I never want to retire and I'm never going to retire, you know, and I've purposely set up what I do such that I'm basically living my retirement now. Like I, I enjoy what I do on a daily basis. I can continue to do this on a daily basis until the day that I die. You know, it just reinforced that the earlier you can find your purpose and that purpose can be beyond what you do for a living, I think the better off you will be. So when did you first come up with that purpose or when was it shown to you? When I started off in business 23, 25 years ago, right? It really was about chasing money. First, it was the tech boom. So I got into tech, then the tech crash and got out of tech. But I never liked technology. I don't like computers and I don't have social media. Like I don't, I'm not into technology. So then I was like, okay, well, why am I in technology? And it became very easy to quit doing it when things got rough because I didn't really enjoy that space anyway. Then I went to the bakery franchise, Great Harvest, and I enjoyed the formation of the business, the build out, the initial kind of like marketing, get it off the ground. But as soon as the doors opened and like I had to show up every day someplace, I was like, hell no, this is terrible. You know, particularly when I got to show up at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know. So that quickly was, well, I definitely don't want to operate. Well, you sold that one kind of fast too. Oh, yeah. Like one year out or maybe two years, two years. But got out of that. Went into real estate development, right? Learned that game. That was interesting to me. It's a great learning situation. But then the 2000 financial crisis happened, which shut down that industry, right? So I had a bit of time to kind of think about what I had done and what was going on. But people always kept calling me and they were either asking for capital or to be introduced to somebody, some sort of connection or just advice about their kind of business. And similar to the situation with Ryan Sean and Elite Parking, that kind of rolled into what I do now. At some point in that point in time, you know, I realized that I enjoyed helping those people who are had this kind of passion and talent and were operators. I enjoyed kind of support them and help them achieve their goals. And in doing so with Elite, I realized, wow, I could do pretty well as for myself as a secondary kind of benefit. But I'm really started because I just wanted to help, you know, this guy grow his business. And so I think at that point, that's when I kind of more formalized, so to speak, or in my mind, that was going to be my purpose going forward, was really helping others accomplish their goals. What about the part where it's like, I'm never going to retire? Where did that kind of philosophy come from? I never wanted to have a job in the first place. And so it's just a natural progression of if you're never going to have a job, then you never have to retire, right? 
people are cut from different cloths. And I've had partners in businesses sitting next to me freaking out because they don't know where the next dollar is coming from. And they're just personality-wise cannot handle that risk and uncertainty. And so they go back to a corporate job and make a ton of money, right? So not everybody can do it, but I personally could never imagine having to show up every day to the same place and answer to somebody telling me what to do. So I think avoiding that naturally led me into just starting my own businesses and then eventually investing in businesses. And when somebody like puts 30 years into their job with 14 vacation days a year, just so that they can get to 65 so that now they can go live their life. I'm like, that's crazy to me, particularly the effect that it has on your health and your relationships and all those kind of things. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a way to live life. So why don't I just try to flip that on its head and figure out how to live life while I'm young and my kids are here. And when I'm 65, I'll go start businesses and go maybe work harder because maybe there's less to enjoy at the time. You know what I mean? But when I'm younger, I'd rather just enjoy my life a little more. With that philosophy in general, though, what pushes that? It sounds like it comes from a young age. So at what age was this, uh, I want to do this this way? I've always thought a little differently. But as it relates to like a work and a career, I did an internship when I was in college at the United Nations. And I lived in New York. And I had to wake up for like four or five months. I had to wake up every day at this condo in Brooklyn in which I was sleeping on my friend's couch put on at like six o'clock, put on a suit and tie, catch the subway to 45 minutes into midtown Manhattan and go to work. And then done it four o'clock, five o'clock and, you know, hang out in New York and go home. But I remember specifically at that point in time going, oh my gosh, I never ever want to do this in my life. You know, it just was, was miserable. It was a great internship, met a lot of interesting people, but the whole like, having to wake up Monday through Friday and go to work, that solidified to me, like, I never want to do this in my life. That's kind of the initial part of it, I guess. I don't know. You know, the funny thing too is that I remember when we first met, we met surfing at Tongs. Mm-hmm. I think I was probably riding like a, one of those wave ski, you know, like trying to- You're always ahead of the time on your vehicles of choice in the water, <laughs> Evan. That's trying to make sure. it easier, right? And I never thought that you worked in New York or anything. I was like, oh, it's my surfing buddy. You know what I mean? Like, we just surfing during the morning. It's funny because some people, like, for some reason, they thought I was, like, some investment banker that moved home to Hawaii to do deals or something I always thought you were, like, a jock, (laughs) handsome-looking dude kind of thing. I mean, that's what I always thought. Yeah. So when people were telling me, and I don't know if this is true, but they're like, no, Adam was, like, the valedictorian at at Iolani or something. I was like, That's not true. That's definitely not true. But don't you guys have like 40-something valedictorians? Now they do, not, okay. not, not back in our day, right? So would you have qualified then in today's standards? Definitely not. Again, maybe if you think, like thinking differently, right? Yeah. My approach, I had the intellect to definitely do better than I did, but I was playing a game. You know, I understood what the game was. And so I got into AP classes. I took like eight AP classes, but my goal was to get 795 in all my AP classes because 79.5 equals a B minus, which equals a 4.0 for your grade point average. So that's how I approached school. So instead of doing that 4.5 thing or whatever, it yeah. goes to that. The thing is you can put in way more effort, right? Like to get to 89.5 and get a 5.0, 
that would have required way more studying, way more focus and energy. And I played a lot of sports at the time. So I had a lot of energy and focus into that. So where does this like mindset come from is what I'm wondering. I, I looked up to Leonardo da Vinci when I was young. I remember for whatever reason, because he was badass in like so many different disciplines. And so I used to like, for some reason, look up to Renaissance men and say, okay, I want to be good in sports. I want to be good in school. I want to be a good person. I was thinking about this other day, like to be great at something, to be like truly like one of the best in the world at something, you really have to sacrifice everything else in order to be one of the best. And I just remember thinking I never really wanted to do that because I really wanted to enjoy and be really good at a bunch of things, but not the best at anything. And I want to have a good time and enjoy life too, which, you know, so I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Can you share the story about how you chose your college? I guess a theme of trying to just be different, but I was pretty good in football in high school. So I had some opportunities to play in college. I had a preferred walk-on offer at UCLA. And just to get into school there was a great opportunity. And then I was talking to a couple coaches in the Ivy Leagues, Princeton and Yale. They flew me out actually to Yale to go check out the school and meet the coaches and watch practice. And I remember it was a spring game in March. It's like 30 degrees, freezing. New Haven is like the butt crack of Connecticut, I believe. Kenna Heffernan was my host at the time. And so I just remember I went to practice, it was freezing cold. I'm like, how do people play you know, football in this weather? And then that night, it was like a Saturday night and everybody was studying. So Kenna had to call like the one crazy partier guy to take me out on the town because he was the only guy not studying or something, right? So we went out and it was fun. And But anyway, on the way back home... I stopped at UCLA for kind of an unofficial visit because I was only a walk-on, so they weren't going to pay for me. But I wanted to meet the coaches. They wanted to meet me. and then, But I had two really good friends that went to school there. Obviously, it's 75 degrees. It's beautiful weather. And my two friends are happen to be one plays football, but they're both in a fraternity. And then so they're like, hey, there's going to be a volleyball tournament down at the beach. Let's go down and check it out. So... I go down, we drive down a Santa Monica beach. I think it's like Will Rogers beach. And there's literally like 500 sorority girls playing beach volleyball. And there's a band and there's kegs like interspersed amongst like the 25 courts. And then just like a raging party. And I'm like, what is this? And like this, oh, this is the, every year it happens called the inner sorority volleyball tournament. So... Enjoyed myself there, got home, said, Dad, I think I'm going to go to UCLA. And funny enough, word got around. I'm in class the next day or so, and I get a slip. I get called into the dean's office, right? I used to get in a lot of trouble. So I was used to getting called into the dean's office at Iolani. But I'm like, I didn't remember doing anything this time. Why am I getting called into the dean's office? So I go into the dean's office. And there's like eight teachers and counselors and people in there. I'm like, what the heck is going on? What did I do? They're like, tell me, sit down. This is old Chinese disciplinary, Mr. Lee. You sit down now. I was like, okay, what did I do? Each one of them starts going into this diatribe of how could I ever pick UCLA over Yale? Was I an idiot? Do I know what that meant to go to Yale and all the advantages that it would create in my life? And da, da, da. So I had to listen 
to people lecture me for like an hour of why I was an idiot to choose UCLA over Yale. And then I was afterwards, I'm like, is everybody done? And they're like, yep. Did you change your mind? Nope. But thank you. And I walked out. And you regret it at all? No, I don't regret it. I have very few regrets in my life. One thing I do regret is I chose football. I was better at football. I had more options to play college football than basketball, which was my true love. I maybe could have pursued basketball a little stronger. I kind of gave up on it because particularly back then and even now, like nobody gets recruited in basketball from Hawaii. But if I had tried and I probably could have got some walk on and I could have walked on at Yale. Princeton ended up beating UCLA in the state in the NCAA tournament the next year, our sophomore year. And so could I have maybe played at Princeton maybe? But so that's the only regret is maybe not pursuing basketball. But UCLA was such a great experience that, you know, ended up being okay. So what's your favorite memory of UCLA? Like something that's uh, meaningful to you? I got to travel in my second year of playing football. And we played at Michigan. So Tom Brady was on the other side of the field. And he and I played the exact same amount of minutes, which was zero. Because he was third string and I was third string, you know. And then we traveled the next week. We traveled to Tennessee, played against Peyton Manning. Again, I didn't play, but I got to be in these stadiums with 110,000 people playing against Hall of Famers or watching Hall of Famers play from a very good vantage point. So that was, that was pretty cool. You know, like anything else, the relationships, I have some really, really good friends to this day. And we had some very fun experiences. I will say fraternity life. I remember I did that for a couple of years. I didn't even know what it was. And I would end up being in a lot of situations where I would think to myself, I'd look around, I'd be like, am I in a movie right now? This is kind of surreal because it was like, I had either seen it in like Revenge of the Nerds. You remember that movie? They have these crazy scenes of, you know, 100 girls holding candles, singing songs. I'm like, this is weird. I think I saw this in a movie, you know, once. But so that was a really fun time doing those things. I wish because I had taken so many APs, I actually started off as a sophomore in college, which gave me time just to like screw around. And I almost flunked out of school. I got an academic probation my first year because I didn't even go to class. I rarely went to class at all. And I look back, I love learning. Now I pay thousands of dollars often to go to executive education courses to learn. But I was at this, you know, really great educational institution. And I really did not put any effort into class or going to, you know, I put as little effort as possible into it, which I regret not pursuing more interesting classes to me at the time. So that reminds me of is Joe Igber, Mm -hmm. you know, the football player from Yolani. And then I was reading an article and said that the NFL combine was coming around and he was like first or second leading rusher at Cal. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm not going. And they're like, why? He's like, I didn't have enough time to study. So I'm going to go back to school. Yeah. And then now he's an engineer. You know what I mean? So I was like, yeah. wow. That's he's an architect, but he never really wanted to play football. He just did it as a pathway to get a free education. So I don't think he was ever planning to be in the NFL. He really liked being an architect or that was his goal from when he was a little kid. That's kind of amazing, right? Like you're so talented in one area that you don't really even want to do. And he was one of the best ever. We just were talking about him the other night. Is that a friend of yours? No, he's younger, but he's classmates with some good friends of mine. So yeah. Are you still coaching basketball? Officially, unofficially, I help the Iolani program. There's a lot of limitations on when coaches 
can coach if you're on the official staff. And in those blackout periods that they call them, when the official coaches can't coach, I'll take the team and I'll work them out or coach them in kind of outside leagues and things like that. But my son's a junior and we've decided that it was in the best interest of our relationship if I stop doing that. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Were you too hard on them, kind? Yeah. Yeah. You yell or something or like just too much? All of the above. Yeah. It's a tale as old as time. Fathers coaching sons just doesn't always work out well, you know? It's the hardest thing. It's it's super hard. And it's something that I'm totally aware of and self-aware of and know I got to, as he was getting older, try to adjust and change, but it's just impossible to fight what those urges that come in to, you know. How did that come up then? It's been off and on conversations since he was probably like, 11, 12 years old. I tell other people this, my experiences, so hopefully they can learn. We started, he started literally training when he was like six, seven years old because I was a coach for so long and understood the game and understood how to practice, how to get better. He was training, you know, maybe it starts off at an hour, but by the time we were like, he was eight or nine, we're doing like hour, half, two hours in the gym every day. And he would call me up every day, dad, when are you coming home? Can we go to the gym? I'm like, okay, let's go. As long as you have that passion, I'll do it. I'll fill that need. And then as we kept going, get to about 10 or 11, you know, I would expect more and more. As we train more and more, I would expect more and more. And when I didn't get, you know, whether it's the more, mostly effort and attitude towards training, when I didn't see it reciprocated, then I would get more angry and, and it didn't always work out well in training. And so by the time... You know, we traveled for a bit. We would train even on our trip. And by the time he was like 13, 14, he wasn't calling me to go train. I was telling him, get your ass in the car. Let's go. You know, because you you told me you wanted this, right? And so that it quickly became harder and harder. And he lost the love and he eventually quit. He's like, I'm done. I don't want to train or play basketball anymore. This is like when he was 14, 13, 14. COVID around that time, then COVID happened, which even spaced that out even longer. And then before last season, he said, I think I'm going to go play again. So he fell in love with surfing at that time, started to surf every day, which is great. We would go surf, you know. Of course, when we would go surf, I would be like, you need to be here. What are you doing over there? Get in here. You got to paddle harder, right? And then if he's like, don't surf by me already. I like surf by myself. So then eventually... He ended up coming back to basketball on his own last before last season. Although well, I said, okay, let's go work out and train. He's like, no, I don't want to train. I don't want to work Isn't out. Isn't he a starter too? Yeah. So he ended up as a sophomore starting for the varsity team because all the training we had done for the first eight years of his life, he put his skill level pretty high in comparison to his peers here. And so he was able to come back out without even practicing and make the team and maybe became the starting point guard. He had an up and down season. But this past spring, I was coaching. And, you know, there's a certain way I expect the game to be played, a certain way I played the game, right or wrong. I project that on him and want him to play the same way. And it's more about effort and attitude, just hustle, play hard, play smart. I don't care, you screw up. But when I don't see that, I get angry. And of course, what happens with fathers that are coaches your eye goes to your son. No matter what you try to do, your eye naturally as a parent is you go to watch your kids play sports. 
you're not watching other kids, you're watching your son. So if you're coaching, you're just watching your son. And when you watch your son, most of the time, you're going to see every single screw up that they do. Whereas everybody else doing the same screw ups, but you're just not seeing it because your eyes are fixated on your son. So now it seems like you're picking on them and in their mind, you're picking on them, right? And so that led to some back and forth during the game, me benching them. You know, maybe he had a little wise-ass comment for me. I I lost it in the gym, went off on him, never put him back in the game. And then, so after that, we had a talk and just said, hey, it's probably best that I don't coach anymore. So there's a new coach this fall. Oh, that's interesting then. Because so you kind of opted out. Because he could have said, I'm out, and then you could still coach. Yeah. I mean, he was like, I'm going to quit again then. I'm like, no, you don't quit. I'll quit. I'll stop coaching. I think that's better. How hard was that for you? It's not that hard because I'd rather have a good relationship with my son than coach him. So, But I love coaching. So when he's done, I can go back coach, right? So it's fine. What is that gym thing that you guys have? We built a facility in maybe 2018. So Rob Yopa, who you know, who is a creative mastermind, had the idea to go get a warehouse and he wanted to build batting cages for his sons were getting older. And, and so he... Got this facility and he's like, hey, let's build out some batting cages. In that warehouse, there was this kind of odd piece of the warehouse that didn't kind of fit in for the batting cage layout. And it just was big enough to put a couple baskets in to do some, it was not a full core, but you can have two separate kind of like shooting drills going on at the same time. So we built out a little workout facility. What's the square footage then of those pieces? It's about 7,000 total. I think the basketball side is like 1,500. So it is at 5,500 on the batting cage side. And then we have a, a trainer that subleases space from us that does training of adults and kids in, in his space. You mean like space. a physical trainer? Yeah, like a performance trainer, like strength and conditioning type. Uh, Name's Jesse. He's in there like six o'clock and it's in mostly older folks up in the morning. That's like pays his bills. And then in the afternoon, he enjoys doing some kids' performance stuff as well. What do you do with the basketball and the baseball then? That's like rented out for coaches or? This is a total money loser for Rob and I. And we have a couple other partners that I'll share. Basically, we split the rent and we try our best to use it as much as we can for us and our kids. And then in those open times, we try to find ways to monetize that open time. But it doesn't necessarily cover the whole nut. What kind of pitching machines did he put in? Like the three-wheel kind? It's automatic feeder and like... Like if you went somewhere, batting cage, and you paid the money and like... Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, you have to dump it in on your own, but you don't want to like put a coin in the thing. And, and it can yeah. throw curves and everything? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's a huge advantage. Rob's got all... He's bought this like driveline. You ever heard of a driveline out of Seattle? So that's a place where like the pros go train in the mainland. So he basically mimicked all their technology. Like he has things that will show you launch velocity off the bat, spin ratios on the pitching stuff. I mean, it's oh, pretty much getting serious. It's been serious oh. for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I saw him out on the field. It was the Gerald Ulta team, right? The Little League World Series. He was yeah. out, I think I saw him on the TV. Yes, he put together that team and then Bud Sardina coached it. Are they up at the Little League right now? Well, they're older now, right? Oh. So they're outside of that age division. But there's basically the division above that. They're competing, I think, in Virginia for that. Or they're actually in Oregon. 
He's been gone the whole summer traveling for baseball with his sons. So I know that you go on these super long trips and there was one that was like almost a year, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. What's the kind of the thought process behind that? Because you took your kids out of school. Part of it is I think maybe I didn't get all the travel bug out of me when I was young. Still a lot of places in the world I wanted to go check out. And I wanted to educate my kids in a different way than having them sit in a classroom all day and memorize worksheets. They were all in public school at the time, Kahala Elementary, which we really liked and enjoyed and were happy with. But just to have a really unique life experience together as a family. And and at that time, my oldest was, you know, I think they were fifth grade, third grade, and first grade or something. And so we knew that typically once you get to like seven, eighth grade, things tend to ramp up, whether it's sports or school. And so that was kind of the window. So we just said, ah, let's go travel the world for a year. I started planning for about five years in advance. My wife, I don't think she believed me that we were going to do it until one day I said, okay, we're leaving. I bought the tickets, so we got to sell everything we own. And, you know, we're going to go. And so, yeah, we did. Wait, so you sold everything you owned? We were, yep. We were renting our house, which was good, but everything else... We had a huge garage sale and a party after, a good like a farewell party as part of the garage sale. But everything we owned at that moment in time basically were in our suitcases, which was a really good experience for the kids because, you know, we tend to hold on to a lot of things and physical objects and that you really don't need, you know. So I think we had a couple boxes of some keepsakes and photos that a friend kept for us. But other than that, that's it. Was there a lot of grief to get rid of all that stuff? For me, no. For my kids, at first there was, because they're things, they're toys or whatever. But as soon as they sold their first thing at the thing and they got money for their stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, it's on. They were out there trying to sell all their stuff at that point. So, How much did you make from the garage sale? A few thousand bucks. Yeah. Like you sold your car and everything? Sold our cars, our furniture. Most of our tried to sell our Whatever we didn't sell, we donated. What did you do when you came back then? You just bought new all new stuff or not really? You yeah. bought less. We just bought what we needed as we needed it, right? So then you're really just filling in what you need, you know. But fast forward, that was five years ago. So now now we got way too much crap again. So I would do it again. But now I cannot. The kids are juniors, sophomore, and seventh grade, you know. So still can. Well back it would then be disruptive. They, they didn't they didn't want to go at the time. Even then, right? The kids were like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to leave my friends for a year. What are we talking about? But when they're that age, you can be like, You don't have a choice, you're going. Now they have a choice, you know. I could try to force them to go, but that'd probably get ugly. You guys went for one year? We went for one year. We left in July. We went east direction, and we went to Europe. And we spent basically six months there, then came home for Christmas break for a couple weeks. And then we went west to Polynesia and Asia, spent six months there and came back. So where in Asia and where in Europe? Where did you go? We started off in England. We lived on a sheep farm in England for about a month and with a family and did some farm chores, which was pretty cool. We kind of interspersed like long stays with some short stays just to be cool experiences. After England, we went to Ireland. We spent a week driving a horse caravan on our own through the mountains of Ireland, which is super unique, awesome experience I recommend to anybody. Like you literally, like the wagons that the settlers brought west you literally show up at the horse farm they give you one hour tutorial how to like put the wagon onto the horse and they give you a map 
and they say, okay, here's your five stopping points over the next seven days. The horse knows where to go. <laughs> go. You are holding the reins and the horse is driving you through the mountains to these different fields. So, so you just got to trust the horse. You have a map. So you can kind of you can kind of steer it, but the horses have done it so many times that, mm-hmm. it, that they know kind of know where to go. So if you're steering it wrong, the horse will pull you in the right direction? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. But, but super cool. You live in a wagon and then it, when you stop in the field, there's like a prearranged place for you to shower, like the person's house or the pub has a shower or whatever that field belongs to. And then there's a pasture. So you disconnect the horse, let it go to pasture. And then you basically set up camp next to your wagon and you sleep in the wagon, but you make bonfire and there's probably like four other wagons that are traveling with you. And so it's pretty cool. It's pretty fun every night. Campfire, eating, you know, pork and beans out of a can. So it's kind of roughing it then. Oh, total roughing it. Uh Yeah. There's no stores or supermarkets along the way. You have to go shopping before you get there and, and fill your wagon up. You know, did your kids like it? Oh yeah, that it was part? so oh. awesome. And then we did that. And my daughter loved horses, so I tried to do an experience for each kid that was specific to them. So we did horses. That was our horse trip, I guess. So then after Ireland, I think we went France first. Stayed for three weeks in the Provence area. A lot of English people on vacation in the summer over there. And then we went to my friend has a house in Luca, Italy. So we spent three weeks at his house almost four weeks there. And he has an olive kind of farm, I guess, as part of his thing. So we stayed on his farm over there. And then after that, we went to Spain. We stayed there for two months in Spain. And we put the kid in there. I had a friend who I met through basketball. He was a basketball coach and he is PE teacher at a small private school. And so he offered to have, and this is prior to us going, he's like, oh, have, have the kids come and jump into school. So the kids actually went to school in, in Spain and I helped him coach basketball there. And Aiden was on a basketball team and my son. And so that was a super cool experience. And the kids would come home every day from school and I'd be like, what'd you guys learn in school? And they're like, I don't know, dad, the guy's speaking Spanish. I was like, oh, so you learned Spanish then? It's like, yeah, I guess. So we did two months there. We would have stayed longer. Our visa ran out for Europe by that point in time. So then we visited a friend in Toronto for a week or so and then came back home. Wait, didn't you visit the basketball team in Toronto? Yeah. So my friend is the general manager of the Toronto Raptors. So we stayed not with him, but in Toronto. And then get a chance to coach that team a little bit or something. No. Oh, no, no, no. At one point I was thinking about doing some sort of sabbatical where I get to go be volunteer and be on the staff and learn, but it would have required too much commitment, too much time away from the family. So how was that visiting that team? I mean, it's a just a massive you know endeavor, right? Like an NBA team is huge, right? I don't know what else is bigger in the world these days than sports and NBA and NFL, right? So just to be a part of this massive experience and having my friend being looking at him going like holy crap you're in charge of all of this like you know the arenas and the dancers and the players and practice facilities and marketing and all of that it's a pretty impressive thing at the same time you're thinking oh must be an incredible life but it's also a grind you know no matter how how many lights and cameras and great it may seem to be a part of the NBA, it's still a grind, you know, even at that level to work and it's still a job and you're still grinding, you know, a lot of travel involved. So, yeah. So then after that, you came home 
for like Christmas and then you went to Asia? Then we went to Tahiti. Oh. Stayed with a friend in Tahiti for a couple weeks. You get plenty of friends, huh? Yep. That's right. And Tahiti is wonderful. I go to Tahiti. We try to go once a year. Tahiti is just like going back in time. It just allows you to like simplify life and re kind of calibrate and get back in touch with the land and the ocean because it's just so much simpler life. So I really enjoy Tahiti. And my friend's family is just wonderful to be around and it's great. So we were there for two weeks. And this is not the overwater bungalow version of Tahiti where you're on vacation. It was at my friend's house, you know, so, but he's still, he lives on the water and it's great. Then from there, we did two weeks in New Zealand. We did a Winnebago trip kind of around the island, North Island. So did two weeks there, which was super cool. And then we went to Singapore. Again, I have another friend that lives in Singapore. But we had a condo there. That was our base for like a month and a half. But we would explore. So we went to Bali once for like a week. Got to surf in Bali, which was cool, Uluwatu. And then we went to Thailand for a week. And then after Singapore, Japan. So we did Japan two months. Again, had the kids go to Japanese language school. And while we were there and spent two two months there. How much would something like that cost? When I did the budget, so if you take out the travel portion, but to live was actually less than what it costs to live in Hawaii. Now, the travel portions to get places, that was additional cost. But the reality was it was the same, if not less, because most places in the world are cost way less than living in Hawaii. You know what I mean? And especially if, like in Singapore, my friend let us stay at his condo for free, right? So and he was he lives here, but he has a condo in Singapore. So that was free rent, you know? Places like Bali and Thailand are super cheap, right? New Zealand, not that expensive. Tahiti, we stayed at my friend's house. So it wasn't more than what my normal living budget was. It was actually... Because the cost of living was cheaper than it kind of evens out to an extent with the travel? No, the travel is still additional. But not super astronomical. Then yeah. So like, the other let's savings. say it costs 15 grand a month to live here in Hawaii for everything, groceries. And again, we didn't own anything too, right? Yeah. So no car payments, no, no insurance payments, no, all of that went away. All those costs went away. But, you know, if you have that, it's 10 to 15 grand a month to live. Ten to ten grand a month, even in living in Europe, is freaking pretty. Is a lot. It goes a lot farther. You know, you can buy a loaf of bread and for two dollars, and a piece of cheese and a bottle of wine for two dollars. You're feeding, you know, your family for like ten bucks and drinking some wine too. You know, mm-hmm. anyway, it depends how you want to do it. You know, we weren't on vacation. We long stayed, grocery shopped, and you know, didn't stay in hotels and stuff like that. So if you could only take with you from that entire trip, maybe one or two memories or stories, what would they be? The stuff that I remember the most, I mean, it's always the people. Like there's lots of beautiful places in the world. The places where we enjoyed the most were the places where we built long, like longer term relationships with people, you know? So like in Spain, because we we're there for like two months, because my son played on a team and they went to school, they made some really good friends. And because they're on a team, right, I I got to hang out with all the parents. And so we did, 
it's just like Hawaii. There's after game, you go to the cafe over there and you all eat and drink. And so I made some really good friends there, which was a really cool experience, you know. Two other things I would take away. Our family, right, became just a lot closer. And not that we were already pretty close. But when you are traveling as this group and you're in a foreign country and you really don't know anybody else in certain situations, the only place to come back to is your family. And you end up having these conversations that I think you don't have in the real world or in your normal life. Because in our normal lives, right, mom's going to work, dad's going to work, kids going to school, and you kind of are coming and going. And then once in a while, if you're intentional about it, you come together for dinner for 45 minutes and you talk. But in this scenario for a year, you're looking at each other all day and all night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for better or for worse. And you drive each other nuts, right? But then you also end up going, well, there's no place for me to run away to. So might as well talk about it. And you have these conversations, whether it's husband and wife, father and son, mother, daughter, brother, sister, that I don't think you have, that we would have had in in normal life, if that makes sense. That was a really cool part of the trip. Have you been able to bring that into your life now back in Hawaii at all? Hard. Real life gets in the way, you know. You try to be more intentional, you know, when you have time like that, when you're not working a daily job, I was able to do some work stuff. I didn't really need to. I kind of set up everything so that my partners were running everything. But when you have the time, right, you can be super intentional with what you're doing on a daily basis, whether it relates to your health and what you eat and how much you work out, how much the conversations you're having with the people around you, you know. Having had that ability to be super intentional, definitely tried to maintain that when we came back. It's just a lot harder because there's so many external factors and variables now pulling on everybody's time and attention. It seems like you have a pretty good amount of control over your schedule. So how are you managing your most important relationships? If I ever write a memoir, it's going to be titled Everything I Learned I Read in a Book. Not everything, but most things. I read a book once. Joe Ehrlich, I believe is his name. I forget the name of the book, but anyway, he was a longtime NFL defensive lineman. Big, tough guy. Used to fight guys all the time. Retired. Struggled in his retirement mentally. Depression. Suicidal thoughts. Ended up going to see therapists. Ended up realizing he had been sexually assaulted as a kid, right? And that's where a lot of his aggression came from. He didn't know it before. It just popped up. Yeah, it kind of came up, right? Yeah. And so he ended up going into the ministry and part of his ministry and being a football coach. And he started a football program based upon the concept of love. And they taught this version of being a male, which is based upon being big and tough and, and all this. And he wanted to base this football team on a concept of love. Anyway, he also was in the ministry and he did last rites for a lot of people. So he did like thousands of last rites performed. And he talked about when someone was dying, he found a consistent theme with what people were thinking about on their deathbed. And it was two things. And, you know, there's more, but he said for the most part, it was the quality of their relationships, bad or good. They wished they had spent more time with their daughter, their father, their son. The second thing was being a part of something larger than themselves, you know? So I remember reading that quite early in 
my life thinking, okay, well, if this guy is talking about dying people, all talking about their relationships, I'd already been a person that was valued relationships, but it really made me think about it more intentionally as far as, you know, when you say managing my relationships, I literally have a list of people that are important to me. And I make sure that I look at that list often and it and say, okay, what can I do to spend time with this person? What do I need to do to improve my relationship with this person and this person, that person? So it's something that I'm definitely intentional about. The real question is, am I on that list? <laughs> I mean, that's why I'm like, freaking guy. I'm... Well, I enjoy having a lot of friends, you know. I'm going to put my name on it. But, you know, there's stuff that's obligation. I think that we don't talk these days with freedom, right? It's like a catch-22, right? I have freedom to do anything I want on every day, right? So it also comes with pressure because I got to decide what I like do, where I like spend my time, you know? And so often, especially nowadays, there's such an emphasis on people following their passion, doing, you know, what makes their heart sing and all this kind of stuff. But I also look at, we don't talk enough about obligation to do certain things. Like I have an obligation to my father, you know what I mean? To make sure that he's okay and spend time with him or obligation to my wife and obligation to my kids, obligation to other members of my family who have helped me, right? So I view those kind of obligations, not that it's a negative thing, but that's got to be first on the list of things that I got to do, right? Oh, you like, got to do that. You got to do it. You know what I mean? That's just how it is. You know, like when you watch Kiku, like the Japanese language shows, and they're always doing these specials on the 100-year-old people, right? And why they live so long. And they interviewed an old grandma who's 103. And they're like, why do you keep doing this or lives for so long? And they all say the same thing. You know, if I don't do the laundry and fold the clothes for that family, then they're not going to have anybody to do it. You know, so that obligation she feels to help out her grandchildren's family or whatever is what gives her purpose, you know, a lot of times. So sometimes your purpose can come from obligation. When does that obligation become problematic? I guess if that obligation starts to negatively impact your ability, right, for you to enjoy your life and the people around you to enjoy their life, then to what level or what you're going to do to fulfill that obligation is where maybe there's some gray area where you have to find the right, the balance. I think on that one, it's tough for a good chunk of people yeah. because there will be obligations either self-imposed or put on, you know, us from somebody else that we're stuck with. Are you talking about aging parents in particular? Or just in general, could be what they feel about their work, could be how they feel about other people in their lives. Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched that show Lost. Not and, and then so they had the guy but... Desmond in the hole and the alarm would go off every hour or so or every 50 uh -huh. something minutes and then he'd have to punch in that code and he was like self-obligated to do it because the last guy was there, ran away, so he was the guy left holding the bag. But now he's stuck doing that and he don't want to do it, mm. but he's stuck doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that to me can create problems. Hawaii people no. in general, we feel obligated and it makes sense that we have the responsibility to care for our parents. Yeah. I mean, they care for us for so much longer than most, you know, Americans tend to do. I think sometimes it can become problematic. Yeah, you're right. And 
and maybe I've been fortunate not to have that obligation creep into the point where I was like, oh my gosh, not yet anyway. So your dad's super healthy? Yeah. Super lucky that he's healthy. He goes on to the Elks Club every day. He's There's got a group of probably eight to 10 people. Not only do they socialize, which is important, right? At that age, you have a group of people to socialize with, but they exercise. They all go swimming together. They do yoga together. So he has that every day to go to. So I think that is definitely a blessing for him and for me to have for him to have that. Then your mom, she passed away when you were young? When I was 24. What's a story that you could share with your mother mm-hmm. that would give me a good idea of like who she was? So my mother was an Olympic athlete. She played volleyball in the Olympics in 1964 in Tokyo. So first and foremost, she identified herself as an athlete. And she would always tell me that I was an athlete and not from a physical sense, but she always focused on the mental side of what it meant to be an athlete and how you approach things differently and how we're just different as athletes. My parents got divorced when I was really young, but I had the old school Chinese father who, you know, made me cut the grass four times because I never did them right the first three times, you know, always told me, that why are you dreaming about being an NBA? You're never going to make them. You're going to be one doctor or lawyer. That's why I'm sending you to Yolani school. Up until probably like 10 years ago, he's like, are you going to get a real job at some point or what? What's going on, you know? So very much, you know, hard work, grounded, humble, you know, respect your family, kind of old school. Mother was like, oh, you can be whatever you want, son. This world is your oyster travel the world, see the world, be whatever you want. You know what I mean? So it was a very much of a balancing of no, be this guy grounded, be whoever you want. And so she was always the loudest holly lady in the gym with all my small friend, Japanese friends, moms were very quiet, right? So all the games, I was very embarrassed because she was yell, scream all the time. But when she passed and I would go through a lot of her correspondence back when people wrote letters, there were so many letters from people like and I I've never met them of people that she had just done little things for with her kindness that she somehow like changed their life by my mom recommending her for a job at Liberty House or something like that she's got a job or giving her a ride to go somewhere like all these little cards from people that she just was a super kind and selfless woman and had a very positive effect on a lot of people that I, I didn't even realize cuz this was my mom you know so why didn't you play volleyball? Same season as football. Who wanted you to play football? I don't know if my dad wanted me to play. I wanted to play football. I mean, I never grew up at Dalberger Canoe Club. You know what I mean? So nobody was playing volleyball. I mean, me neither. So we were playing. I don't think I was allowed back then. She used to go down there because she knew the volleyball crowd. And I used to go play for fun. I remember playing on the baby courts with J.J. Riley, who ended up being like an all-American volleyball player. And so... I used to play volleyball for fun, but when it came down to, there was no boys volleyball like leagues and back in the day. Maybe there was, I don't know. And she never pushed you? She did. I mean, she wanted me to play volleyball. I think I actually played it intermediate for one season. I enjoy it. I still, I play volleyball now for fun. I enjoy it. My daughters, it's it was a joy. In fact, we were in Manhattan Beach this summer. My daughter plays beach volleyball, right? She doesn't play indoor. My mom grew up in Manhattan Beach, California. So we're literally there for like two and a half weeks. And I was driving one day and I think I like recognized 
the house she used to take me to like where she grew up i remember when i was little in manhattan beach i'm like i think grandma used to live right there kyla and i was like man if she was here she would be so proud and like in, in so much enjoy watching my daughter play volleyball because i never did you know so i was like well that's okay kai just remember she's watching and that you got all your volleyball skill from her so so what would be your favorite memory with your mom then i just remember she was the one that used to like rebound for me all the time when we go to the park like she was a way better athlete than my dad <laughs> so she would shoot and rebound and we would play ball together hard to pick just one so she still played volleyball? Um, yeah, she ended up, she played at like 50 years old. She did, her and her friends made like a one last like Makuli team that went to travel to nationals and 50 and over and played in a volleyball tournament. Indoor? Or indoor, beach? indoor, yeah. That's hard in your body. Yeah, she had like two shoulder surgeries and everything from, from volleyball. You think that it's because she wasn't able to travel but wanted to that gave you that push to all these kind of long and unconventional travel? Maybe. It was interesting. You said you saw the magazines that she wanted to travel, yep. but she couldn't. And then travel, you realized that you didn't travel as much when you're young and you wanted to do it. And then now's the time before you get too old and other things, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I always loved history. I loved geography. I loved looking at maps from a young kid time, I was always curious about the world and always wanted to see it. You seem like you have a pretty kind of grounded, centered, you know, energy and stuff around you. Mm -hmm. are, are you pretty much always like that then or what? I try to be for the most part. So I mean, you don't really have like low lows, high highs? My lowest lows is when I drink too much. It was funny. We haven't seen a group of friends for a long time. I went to his house. He had an open bar. He had like full on people bartending. Friend was handing out shots. We we're having a great time. And then I was like, oh, I don't feel good. I got to get out of here. So I go home. So it was just me and my wife, right? Those adults only. My, my daughter was at home. I went home, lied down. I guess I got up and I was spinning. So I was in the bathroom. I was pollowing in the toilet. This is like a couple months ago, right? My daughter calls my wife. My daughter's home, right? So she calls my wife and is like, Mom, you got to come home and get me out of here. Dad is throwing up all over the place. What is going on? And so my freaking wife is cracking up. She like records. She has a voice message. She like puts it on a group text of everybody that was all our friends on the party listening to my daughter freaking watch me throw up in a bathroom flipping out. So that's a low light, I guess. Although okay. it's still funny. So what about like tough times you have all these like really exceptional experiences so when were some times that were like tough and how'd you make it through that my mom's passing mm -hmm. was was tough the first couple of business failures and managing through those you know were tough but the reality is i purposely don't choose to do even the toughest things that happen that i don't dwell on them life is short there's no sense i i know I've had conversations with people they just really want to like dig down deep into like pain and suffering that really has caused what I'm really feeling now and all that kind of stuff. And I do a lot of internal self kind of digging and journaling and writing and all those kind of things. I go through my life and I try to find experiences that are meaningful. I write them down and stuff, but I don't really have those. And people think I'm hiding something or holding stuff in or down but I just think that I've always just quickly 
If anything bad happens, it is what it is. Was it in my control? How can I learn from it? Okay, next day, let's go. Life is too short, you know? Who's the ones wanting you to dig into your pain? No, I've had conversations with people. Oh. Like they ask me the same question, yeah. right? And when I tell them I don't really have many like that, they like just can't believe it. Like, no, you're wrong. There's got to be. You're holding stuff in. Not really affecting you in a detrimental way, then why bother? Yeah, that too, right? Uh, I mean, if it's coming up and popping up in, in areas of your life and kind of causing a problem, then yeah. But why go poking then if no need? Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I poke all the time. I'm always poking. I'm always journaling and poking and nothing comes up. You're meditating and then you start to journal? I always try to journal. Nothing. I could never do it. But at 40 years old, probably when I'm on this trip, again, with some time and intentionality, I was able to create a habit of journaling. And, and what do you journal? Like, what are you writing down when you journal? I forget the name of the woman who came up with it, but it's literally just a 20 minute free, free journal. Like it's the morning journal. Yeah, the morning, morning journal, pages. morning pages, Tim Ferriss, mm-hmm. and he referred to this creator, this woman who a lot of creators and writers go to, 20 minutes, don't stop. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it started. So that's typically what I do. But then sometimes I will do more gratitude-based. So I'll start with thankful for yesterday, what's going to happen today, somebody in my life, and something I can see, four things like that, see where that leads. Sometimes it's a business idea that I wake up that popped in my head. I want to just get through it. So it, it's all kind of different. I do once in a while make sure I check in on making, you know, like listing, making sure I'm living my intentional values, right? Sometimes it's relationships. So I don't know. It's just different. So you're doing 20 minutes a day. It's not every day too. Sometimes cannot, but you know, I try. Are you meditating also? I'll at least get in a minute like of deep breathing every day what's the breathing protocol and just do five seconds in five seconds out so even yeah you're counting as you're six times you're going in through your stomach and then your chest or recently i've been doing it barrel breathing it's this concept where instead of breathing into your stomach or your chest you try to it's like you're a barrel and you're trying to fill up your chest and your stomach at the same time through your nose and out through your nose through your mouth out through my mouth i'll use headspace sometimes you know the app so I'll use that sometimes for more guided meditations. I do a lot of yoga, which is almost like as long as to me, as long as you're in a space where your thoughts are not allowed to just go elsewhere and you're really in the moment, you know, so like sports to me does that a lot a lot of times. If you're in the moment playing basketball or lifting if you're in the middle of a weightlifting set, you're not thinking about anything else other than getting that bench or that bar off of your chest, right? Yoga, similar swimming, some of the monotonous like swimming, running, you can kind of lose focus a little bit. But I think anything that puts you in that mindset, at least during the day, is important, you know, give your brain a rest. What kind of yoga are you doing? Like mostly like flow, more the intense kind. So I get more of a workout in. Like the vinyasa flow? Yeah. Yeah. You ever tried the Bikram kind or the hot yoga? I did. It's too hard. It's unsustainable. Because the heat or... Yeah, or the heat, both both of them. I mean, it's freaking how much, how long you got to hold the poses, and then the heat combined. Workouts, it has to be in, enjoyable. Otherwise, it's just not sustainable. Then, if it's not sustainable, then why? It's not a good workout, you know. Yeah, I, I started doing it like a uh, pocket style, so I had like a little space heater on myself. Yeah, and uh, you, you know, YouTube. 
but only half an hour. The Bikram oh, kind of like they call yeah. it twenty short one poses or I don't know. Yeah, because my friend Eric Russell was like, "Come to my class," but I was like, "Oh, I'm kind of embarrassed a little bit." I don't yeah, know. yeah. So I'm just doing it on my own. But the, I, I think the first time I did it, I literally could do like ten percent of what, like yeah. they're doing these moves. I'm like. I look absolutely nothing like that. <laughs> you know, like, because I have mirrors still. It's like, I look nothing like this. And I'm like 10% in the pose and dying. <laughs> yeah. But And then the old lady, the 80-year-old woman next to you is doing yeah. it flawlessly, right? But after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm making pretty good gains. It was, it has been pretty helpful. I mean, yeah. any yoga, if you can stick to it, it's great. Especially that one. It's so hard, your body. It's hard. Definitely. It's hard. If you got to stay in the poses like super long, then I'm worrying about the pose. But this one's like, I'm trying to even just do the pose. So by the time I'm like trying to do it, they're like, okay, yeah. next pose. I'm like, oh, okay. How long, you, so how long you been doing it? Was maybe three weeks. Yeah. Three weeks so far. And yeah, it's only like half an hour on YouTube. I mean, you can, so like I put a little space heater in my garage and I just go on YouTube and I, I just try different people and different ones just to see which one i like the aloe you should try aloe yoga oh yeah i did one the try brie that. something yeah she's yeah, kind yeah. of like a hop holly yeah yeah ladies she was good but my brain spotting therapist is also a yoga instructor you're so you're what so i so brain spotting is like a psychotherapy model where mm-hmm. basically you can hold open certain parts of your brain based upon the relevant eye positions at the time basically like okay so if this is like your spinal cord mm-hmm. and then it goes this is the reptilian brain right the animal brain okay and then around that is the limbic system which is the emotional brain okay and then up here is the neocortex which is all of the stuff that gives you the higher level functioning math and okay. and spatial and being able to maneuver and run your businesses and so okay. on right but all of the more or less like trauma and so on is typically held in these lower parts okay right so when it gets stuck in there, right? Because trauma is mm-hmm. not necessarily what happens to us. It's mm-hmm. what happens in us as a result of what happens to us, right? Mm-hmm. You get a basketball injury. It's traumatic. But then it physically heals. Mm-hmm. However, in that time period, you're guarding it and so on. And now all of a sudden, anytime you kind of go this way, automatically you start to react, mm-hmm. right? So you're muscle guarding it or whatever. You cannot do things. That's actually the trauma, right? The wound that is unhealed, but it's invisible. Got it. So where that's typically held is in this lower part of the brain okay so with brain spotting what happens is your eyes are part of your brain they initially came out of your brain and then they connect kind of back in so there's a relevant eye position that holds the file of that where that trauma is held open really yeah so So when you show me the eye position what's your eye position there's certain like setups that you would do in order to kind of go in there yeah so Uh, you basically go in through your body and then you find the I position. When you say I position, it's so it's not just like I'm gonna look left, like where up you're looking, or right. That's yeah. different. And it okay, is. Yeah, okay, okay. It actually is because yeah. what happens is you, you would notice too, like as you're telling me certain stories, you're moving into an emotional space of some sort. Mm-hmm. Your eyes are going somewhere. Got it. You kind of you know like when you get there and you're kind of like gazing outer space, mm-hmm. and then you kind of come back and it's like, well, but yeah, that's yeah, actually yeah, the yeah. I position. Oh, interesting. So when you stay on it, it holds that open, and you can start to process everything. However, if there's a lot of activation, you know, if it's like yeah, stuff is triggering stuff, yeah. it's very hard to stay there yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's too dysregulating for when we want to get out. So I'm actually certified in brain spotting, but I have a, I have brain spotting therapists that help me because no matter how much I know, it's still the other person, you need their attunement, you need them to hold space yeah. to guide us through it because otherwise then I have to 
you know, be cognizant of what I'm doing. Are they using this with professional? Because when you mentioned the injury, injury side, right? Like that's yeah. the key. A lot of times is that neural, that brain, yeah. muscle, brain, it's unconscious whatever. It's stuck. Yeah. And then yeah. it leads to future injury because people, right? And so, yeah, we always, my friend that owns physiotherapy, PT, is always talking about a lot of the issues with rehab is not necessarily the muscle function or the joint function. It's the brain talking to that area saying, you got to yeah. let it go. It's the software programming yeah. in there got adjusted and now you have a bug in the system yeah. and that bug just runs until it's unbugged, debugged, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So That's athletics especially, yeah. I mean, you know, you get an injury. So I'll give you a good example on this one. So in 2019, I broke my back, right? And I have mm-hmm. a brilliant idea. I'm going to buy a one-wheel motorized skateboard, practice my foiling. I eat it, fall on my back, boom, burst fracture in my vertebrae. The pieces, there's a piece like right on my spinal cord. I'm sorry I'm smiling or laughing. I just It's just ridiculous, know, right? What did you think he was going to happen? I, on I don't know. I, I, saw the, I see those guys. I'm yeah. like, that looks crazy. I thought it was amazing. That's why I looked at your bike. I was like, yeah. And then it's like, nah. But anyway, so I was, I, I was basically, no, I could not move, right? I was in... Yeah. 10, 9 or 10 out of 10 pain. I'm in rehab hospital trying to figure out how to, can I even go to the bathroom? Not just go to the bathroom, but like go to the bathroom. And I didn't want to wear the brace because the brace was super uncomfortable to me. Mm-hmm. At rehab hospital, you have to do the PT and the OT, no matter mm-hmm. how painful it is or you got to go home. Okay. So I was like, just want to go. I don't want to do it, but I want to stay here because it's kind of comfortable. When I was doing the PT, I remember I, I was giving them a hard time about the brace. And the PT said, look, you have to wear this brace. I said, why? She said, you see the kid over there? And there was a 21-year-old kid that was like the paraplegic. From the waist down, could not move. And he had this rope tied to his legs. And he was lifting the rope to lift his leg to move Mm. it. That's what they were teaching him. How to wrap a rope around your leg and Mm. move it so you could move somewhere. She goes, he has the same injury as you. And if you move in the wrong direction, especially without this brace, that's going to be you. Uh, and I went, give me the damn brace. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. put this brace on and everything for, I don't know, almost, I mean, especially in the first number of months was no bending, lifting, or twisting. No BLT. Do not bend, lift, or twist because if you do that, you could sever your spinal cord. Damn. And so everything was like you roll on your side, you do this hot dog maneuver. Everything was like, do not wow. move. But guess what happens a year after that? Yeah. You know, the thing is basically healed up. Yeah. But, you but can't, next you thing you know, I start to reach this. over for a pen and it's like, you know, I mean, it's just automatic. Mm. And that kind of what's going on in the nervous system, which is like, uh-uh, is like preempting everything, right? Yeah, we yeah, ain't yeah. taking another injury. So it's like, can't even move. Is it you just tense up or is there pain when you do it, when you do that? Could be either or both. You know what I mean? It's just a reaction a yeah. lot of times, right? Like a lot of times not even, you wouldn't even think about it. So in the process of actually healing up this back and getting back into the flexibility and the strength needed, it's not just PT. You know what I mean? The physical part of it is actually pretty good. It's whatever is going on, not even mentally, but like unconsciously in sure. the nervous system, right? So... Yeah, Yeah, that's where I had to go in and really start to look at a lot of different ways to do this because otherwise I can't get any flexibility and mobility back properly. And brain spotting for that is very helpful. Well, I would say brain spotting and somatic experiencing for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, you look like you're in good shape. 
Well, I lost some weight recently and so on, but yeah. I was kagging for kind of a while, yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Okay, so for the hot yoga, my brain spotting therapist, who mm-hmm. is a hot yoga instructor too, she said, you know, are you getting angry or irritated? And I'm like, yeah, I am getting kind of angry and irritated. Why are you asking me that? She goes, because in Ayurvedic medicine, mm-hmm. you have too much pitta, like heat. So you're putting heat on heat, which is going to make you uh, agitated and so on. I was like, dang it, because I kind of like the heat to be able to stretch out, but yeah, I was noticing yeah, yeah. that like I'd start snapping in at like dumb things that make no, no sense of why I would necessarily do that. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That was just a side note. The, what would she recommend then? She, recommend she recommended like, like yin yoga, like the longer oh, stretches, yeah, yeah. smoother flows, but maybe even doing the yoga, the 26 poses without additional heat. I see. I've been kind of playing around with that for like the last couple of days. Got it. Yeah. I could see that. You have a natural energy. You're an energetic person, I it's think. It's heat, right? Like it's like fire. Yeah. Like you're you're always kind of going, right? So I could imagine, yeah, getting that, doing even more of that might not be good versus yeah, like chilling, mellowing. Yeah. You're not going to turn the fire down by adding more fire. Yeah. 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 So, and that's, oh, that's the thing too, right? Like if only if it's causing issues in my life doesn't yeah, yeah. matter right like if it was adding heat on heat and it wasn't really causing issues but yeah. you know i'm snap at somebody or my yeah. family or something and it's it's avoidable and, and actually unjustified and so on then no sense making ruptures where they aren't needed yeah right especially if we yeah cut no, it, it off it's interesting because i'm a pretty low energy mellow that's my steady state so i do yeah. like hot like powerful flow kind of stuff gets me going. You know? Yep. So I like yeah. the energy there. Yeah. If I do the yin stuff, it's too boring. I don't like it. Maybe fall asleep kind, right? Yeah. 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 So I think for that, it's like everybody's different. Yeah. Right. It makes sense. I never thought about it that way. So I just want to appreciate you. Thank you for coming. You've always been a good friend to me. You've always been supportive to me. So I want to acknowledge that. Likewise. Appreciate you. We're kindred spirits in some ways because we always see each other when everybody else is working. And we're out in the water or hanging out at your house talking a story, right? So, yeah, it's, it's been fun for sure. Thank you. Thank you. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.